Good evening. Russia marks victory day in Moscow, but Kiev says his forces have the advantage. New York State makes a move to codify abortion rates, rights, how the media covered the leak, and a new underground railroad to help women end their pregnancies. And a Black Lives Matter founder says she did nothing wrong. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, May 9th, 2022. United States and its Western allies yesterday announced new sanctions against Russia over the Ukraine crisis, a move that aims to further cripple Moscow's economy, but poses severe challenges for global economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. The group of seven said it will phase out or ban the import of Russian oil following a video conference yesterday. According to its statement, the group will carry out the oil ban over a period of time in order to find alternative supplies. It will also take further actions against Russian banks and continue sanctions against additional individuals. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky attended the meeting during which he asked the Western countries to provide more weapons and financial support for Ukraine. The United States has already moved to ban imports of Russian energy, including oil, natural gas and coal. It will also dial up its export control measures, prohibiting U.S. exports of industrial products like engines and bulldozers to Russia. And today, the United States moved to eliminate uh, uh, import duties on steel manufactured in Ukraine. And the new president of Costa Rica, Rodrigo Chavez, took office yesterday, urging unity for a historic change. Otherwise, the country could fall apart, he said. Chavez's inauguration ceremony began at the headquarters of Costa Rica's Legislative Assembly, where he pledged to make a historic change. In his first speech, the president called for unity, declaring that there are no differences between the ruling party and the opposition. If the political class fails once again, the country could fall apart, he warned. Since the 1940s, Costa Rica has been one of the only countries in the world without a standing army. And Vladimir Putin exhorted Russians to battle in a defiant victory speech today, but was silent about plans for any escalation in Ukraine, despite Western warnings he might use his Red Square address to order a national mobilization. During the solemn occasion marking the victory for the Soviet Union over Nazi Germany in 1945, Putin tearfully laid a wreath on Russia's tomb of the unknown soldier near the Kremlin. At least 28 million people died in Russia's fight to expel the Nazi invaders who occupied most of Ukraine and fought the Red Army across a 2,000-mile front. Putin gave a speech to the thousands of soldiers and bemetalled generals in attendance. He blamed the war on Western decadence. Today you are defending what your fathers and grandfathers and great-great-fathers were fighting for, who saw security of their country as their priority. This is the biggest value that Russia relies on. Those who uh, fought Nazis showed us their bravery. This was the generation of uh, victorious troops. Glory to our armed forces. Hooray to Russia.
That's the sound of the Russian national anthem. Monday's annual parade in Moscow with the usual ballistic missiles and tanks rumbling across the cobblestones was easily the most closely watched since the 1945 defeat of the Nazis that it celebrates. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky said in this war, right is not on Russia's side, but with the Ukrainian people. Never again. Вистачило на 77 років. Ми прогавили зло. Воно відродилось знову і зараз. Again and now. Це розуміють всі країни. On the day of victory over Nazism, we are fighting for a new victory. The road to it is difficult, but we have no doubt we will win, said Zelensky, wearing plain army garb with his shirt sleeves rolled up. Meanwhile, in Washington, where sources say Democratic lawmakers have agreed on a $40 billion aid proposal for Ukraine, including a massive new weapons package. In fact, uh, where beyond that, the president of the United States made the announcement earlier today. The White House described Putin's remarks as revisionist history that took the form of disinformation. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby. Ukraine? Ukrainians, not Nazis. I mean, it was just a ridiculous claim. Um, so uh, we heard pretty much the same out of, out of Mr. Putin. Uh, what we didn't hear, not that we expected to, but what we should have heard was plans for how he's going to end the war, how he's going to move his forces out of Ukraine, uh, and how he's going to finally respect Ukraine as a sovereign state and nation that borders his, a nation that posed absolutely zero threat. That's what we didn't hear, and I think that's what he should have said. And that's John Kirby. He's the spokesperson for the Pentagon. And in more news, stocks racked up more losses on Wall Street today, leaving the Standard Poor's, the S&P 500, as it's known, at its lowest point in more than a year. The sell-off came as renewed worries about China's economy piled on top of global financial markets already battered by rising interest rates. The S&P 500 tumbled 3.2 percent, deepening its losses following five straight down weeks, as long as such streak in more than 10 years. The New York, the pardon me, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 2 percent and the Nasdaq. That's the tech stocks pulled back 4.3 percent as tech oriented stocks again took the brunt of the selling. Monday's sharp drop leaves the S&P 500, Wall Street's main measure of health, down 16.8 percent from its record set earlier this year. Is a recession in the making? Economists say the clearest sign that a recession might be nearing would be a steady rise in job losses and a surge in unemployment. As a rule of thumb, an increase in the unemployment rate of three-tenths of a percentage point on average over the previous three months has meant a recession will eventually follow. And police asked for the um, – Pardon me, coming back to the United States, police asked for the public's help today in tracking down those who vandalized and threw two Molotov cocktails into the office of a prominent Wisconsin anti-abortion lobbying group's office that was damaged by fire. No one has been arrested and there are no suspects in custody in the fire that was discovered early yesterday morning when someone driving to Madison's nearby airport noticed flames coming from the office building. That's according to the police chief. The fire at the Wisconsin Family Action Office came after two Catholic churches in Colorado, including one known for its anti-abortion display, were vandalized last week. The leak last week of a draft opinion suggesting that the United States Supreme Court was on course to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide sparked protests across the country, including in Madison, Wisconsin. Demonstrations included weekend protests by abortion rights supporters outside the homes of conservative U.S. Supreme Court justices with more planned this week. Uh, some of us might remember 
back in the 1970s, the bombing by radical activists of the Army Math Research Center in Madison, Wisconsin, that killed one and destroyed a six-story building. As the Supreme Court moves to limit the constitutional right to access abortion services, New York State is gearing up to accommodate an influx of residents from other states seeking reproductive health care, Linda Perry reports. In New York State, even though abortion is legal, reproductive health access has been out of reach for some New Yorkers, including immigrants, trans, low-income, and folks on Medicaid. Any rollback or constraint of any health care right is fundamentally unjust. New York State Senator Cordell Clear. And we know it will have particular harm on women of color, those of modest means, and those already suffering disparities under our current system. And this includes residents outside of New York who will want to come here to access abortion care. New York State Attorney General Tish James says every person in the country should have the right to control their own bodies. If Roe is overturned, 26 states will ban and or are likely to ban abortion. And 58% of women of reproductive age, or about 40 million women, uh, live in those states. And um, a significant number of members of the LGBTQ community as well live in those states. And over the past few years, as states have rolled back this right and made it harder to get an abortion, New York has already experienced an uptick in people coming to our state to get an abortion. In preparation, New York State is working to expand access for reproductive health care. There's a new bill. It's called the Reproductive Freedom and Equity Legislation. It's sponsored in the Assembly by Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas and in the New York State Senate by Cordell Clear. It ensures access through funding to abortion providers and nonprofit organizations whose primary function is to facilitate access to abortion care. There may be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are going to turn to New York for access to abortion care. And we have to be ready and willing and able to welcome everybody with compassion, with dignity and with quality abortion care. For more than a decade, Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas was the executive director of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. I'm so proud to be the sponsor in the Assembly alongside Senator Clear of the Reproductive Freedom and Equity Fund. This fund will direct money, $50 million, to the Department of Health in order to offer grants to abortion providers and nonprofits that assist people in accessing the re- abortion care that they need. And that means everything from allowing providers to get training and education and bringing more staff and security, as well as ensuring uncompensated care is being reached so that people who don't have insurance, don't have access to insurance, can get this care. And it also provides resources for folks to get here, travel, child care. Most people who have abortions are already parents. And, um, and doula care as well. So this is a critical piece of legislation. Last week's news confirmed what we have known for a long time. A majority of the justices of the Supreme Court are champing at the bit to overturn Roe versus Wade. Andrea Miller is president of the National Institute for Reproductive Rights. Appointed expressly for that purpose, we have zealots that are willing to place anti-abortion idolatry and ideological fervor over the health, well-being, and bodily autonomy of millions of people across this country. 
If the Supreme Court overturns Roe, we know what will happen. Nearly half of the states will ban abortion or otherwise push it almost entirely out of reach. They will do so despite the views and the needs of their residents, the majority of whom in every state support legal access to abortion care. Miller says, make no mistake, Justice Alito's callous and draconian draft opinion is a call to action. She says New York is answering that call as we've done even before the days of Roe v. Wade. New York State passed the Reproductive Health Act in January of 2019. It expanded abortion rights, decriminalized abortion, and it eliminated several restrictions on abortion in the state. Now, in addition to this new bill, the Reproductive Freedom and Equity Funding Legislation, New York State Senator Liz Krueger introduced a new bill in Albany. It protects New York doctors from being arrested for providing abortion services to out-of-state residents. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. The abortion access reporter for The Nation is Amy Littlefield. She's author of numerous articles tracking the growing resistance to state laws banning abortions. She says groups are forming across the country funded by wealthy patrons because the 1970s-era Hyde Amendment prohibits federal funding of abortions or anything related to abortions. The groups that are forming, though, are developing a pipeline to make sure anyone who wants an abortion can get one in a state where abortion will probably remain legal. But many are asking, where is Joe? There have been more than 1,300 restrictions on abortion passed since Roe, and almost all of those have been at the state level. And so we already have states that have, you know, only one clinic or that functionally, you know, have been having to send people across state lines. And so the grassroots organizations, abortion funds and and practical support organizations that have made it their mission to get patients from those states to clinics are really kicking into high gear to be able to facilitate access in a whole on a whole other level, right? I think we're about to witness kind of the largest logistics operation that we've ever seen, at least in this particular context. There's groups already in Texas and New Mexico that are coordinating airlifts of patients from Texas where there's been a six-week ban in effect for eight months and bringing them to New Mexico for abortions. I've talked to abortion fund organizers that support indigenous patients who've gone out and chartered on a private plane to to pick patients up and take them to their abortion clinics. These organizations, grassroots organizations, have been moving mountains for many years in order to not just pay for people's abortions because of the longstanding ban on on federal funding of abortion, the Hyde Amendment, to not just pay for that care, which can be expensive, but to facilitate the child care, the access to medication that's needed, the hotel rooms, the airfare, the inner city transportation in cities like Chicago and New York, where people are going to be going for abortion care. This is a massive logistical operation that's really being coordinated by grassroots activists who I argue are some of the most brilliant strategic minds in the movement. Who's paying for it? That's a great question. The reality is that one of the the structural problems that the movement is facing right now is that it really has been dependent on a handful of billionaire-backed private foundations because the strategy of the anti-abortion movement over time, or I should say one of the strategies, has been to systematically cut off public funding of abortion because the anti-abortion movement has really targeted public dollars that work is really reliant on private foundations, which can be quite unreliable. What about these laws that are being passed or at least are talking about to make it illegal to leave the state to get an abortion? That's 
going to be a huge legal battleground in the post row landscape that's already looming. To what extent do states have the right to actually stop somebody from that state from leaving the state to get an abortion? Of course, states are going to try this because they're going to try everything possible to force people to carry pregnancies to term when they get pregnant. What we don't know is whether courts will allow it. We're going to see battles playing out over precisely these questions. I mean, I think another really important element of this is medication abortion. In contrast to before Roe v. Wade, there are now pills that people can buy online and have shipped to their house to safely manage an abortion at home. And so I think Republican-led states and states that are trying to ban abortion are going to be trying out all kinds of strategies to try to stop the unstoppable. It reminds me of the 1850s, over 150 years ago, when they had the Fugitive Slave Act. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So are they revisiting those days? Yes, I think many people have seen that historical parallel. And the fact that one's ability to access abortion care is going to depend on the state where someone lives. And that's already true. It's going to become even more dramatic. And I think it's really going to become a major legal question in the years to come. Where's Biden? A lot of people are asking that. In fact, there was a huge protest outside the Supreme Court right after the news of the Politico leak broke. And where is Joe? is something that activists were chanting and wondering that very thing. He didn't come out and address the nation. He didn't treat this as the nationwide emergency that many people feel that it is. Of course, there is a bill in Congress, the Women's Health Protection Act, that would codify Roe and protect the nationwide right to legal abortion in every state. But it seems that Democrats do not have the ability to end the filibuster or the political will to end the filibuster and pass that into law. Activists are really wondering where the leadership from the Democratic president is in this moment. And uh, that is Amy Littlefield, the abortion access reporter for The Nation. And the senior analyst for the media watchdog group FAIR is Julie Holler. She really recently co-wrote the piece, Media Shocked by the Leak, Not the Opinion. She says when Politico published a leaked draft Supreme Court opinion that would have handed down by the court overturned Roe v. Wade and undermined the foundation for many privacy rights enjoyed by Americans today, it was a headline story across U.S. news outlets. But Holler adds, in the flood of coverage, too many elite media outlets focus on the leak itself and treated the issue as a political football rather than entering, centering the real world implications the opinion would have. For everyday people. She spoke with WBAI earlier today. News Breitbart, the right wing media, um, their their hardcore emphasis was who did this? Who did this? What does it mean for the court? Um, you know, they're trying to downplay the the more um, the questions of the impact on the public. Um, understandably, because it's not particularly popular, the the decision that that Alito was handing, trying to hand down. It's not, it's not particularly popular. Um, but what they want to do is turn this into a whodunit and try to get the media to focus on just that, that question of who leaked it, um, what does this mean for the court? That was the, that was the dominant right-wing question in the media. Um, when you look more at places like CNN, ABC, CBS, um, you got a little bit more diversity of topics. So you got, you did get the, the who done it, 
Um, and you did get some of the, what does this mean for women? What does this mean for pregnant people? What does this mean for families? Um, there I feel like, you know, depending on the outlet, depending on the reporter, this is going to be a little bit of a blanket statement, but um, there were always exceptions. But I think what I saw was a little bit of a dancing around the impact, um, you know, speaking to, well, you know, what is this going to mean for clinics, like abortion clinics, rather than what is this going to mean for the people that they serve? Um, you know, thinking about um, questions like what's going to happen to those people that they serve, what's going to happen in terms of poverty, what's going to happen in terms of health. Um, you know, they, the, the media coverage didn't get very explicit in those terms. And those are the kind of things that they need to get explicit about. From this, can you divine any ideas of how the media is going to cover any uh, looming civil war in the United States? The media really need to step up, and I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to happen. I think there's way too much timidity. There's too much emphasis in corporate media on this idea of objectivity, this idea that they need to be somehow neutral, and this idea that they can seek some sort of balance. We have one side of our political system that has gone completely off the rails and is just not subscribing to any of the rules of democracy anymore. And you can't both sides that. And that's what the corporate media continue to try to do. Even after January 6th, they're continuing to try to do that. And if they do keep that up, it's just going to be really hard for democracy to stand. Is there anybody out there doing a good job? The best thing to do is to find independent outlets. It's the independent outlets that aren't afraid to stand up and to not both sides things. It's the independent outlets who aren't taking corporate money, who either get their money from supporters, viewers, listeners, readers, or the nonprofit independent outlets who are doing the best work right now, I think. Any particular ones in mind? One thing I would like to plug, first of all, besides plugging FAIR, where oftentimes on particular issues we can point people in different directions, there's a new aggregator, a news aggregator out called Opt Out. You can get on your phone that pulls in all sorts of different local and national media outlets that are independent, that are trying to do good work so that you can find more reliable information from covering all the whole spectrum of subjects, political subjects that you might be interested in. And that is Julie Holar of FAIR. She recently co-wrote the piece, Media Shocked by the Leak, Not the Opinion, on the FAIR website. And a nonprofit run by one of the founders of Black Lives Matter has come under fire by conservative media after her tax filing showed she received $2.5 million in donations from the Silicon Valley Foundation in 2020. Forms filed last month show that Dignity and Power Now, a Los Angeles-based grassroots agency headed by BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors, secured $4.2 million in donations in 2020, with the bulk of that sum coming from the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, a multi-billion dollar fund based in the Bay Area. But in an interview with the Associated Press reporter, Aaron Morrison, Culler said she had done nothing wrong in investing $6 million in a movement headquarters building, but she has come under attack for political reasons. We found this really amazing space that's a sweep spot between commercial and residential that has office spaces, that has parking, that has, yes, a home on the property, but also has a soundstage where you could do podcasts and you could do 
uh, live events in the backyard. Did you ever receive a salary from the foundation when you were involved either in the early days or uh, before you left? No, I never received a salary from the organization, um, but I did receive consulting dollars from the organization in the early days. Uh, and it was about $120,000 that I received. How do you respond to that? That people who think that because you're doing well, that somehow means that you aren't um, as credible a, a movement practitioner? I believe that black organizers who are fighting day in, day out on behalf of black lives uh, deserve to receive salaries, deserve to receive benefits. Um, in fact, for most of my organizing life, I was not an organizer that received a salary. Have you ever used money from BLM to pay for your home or the homes of your family members or any other funds that were donated to Black Lives Matter to essentially enrich yourself? No, I have never used Black Lives Matter donations to pay for any of the properties that I own in the past or own right now. You know, the idea that Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation received millions of dollars and then I hid those dollars in my bank account is absolutely false. Is there any truth to the reports that your family um, have, has been hired um, to work at the property that was purchased by Black Lives Matter? While my brother is the head of security and my mom and sister did work at the property, there are also dozens of other people who work in the organization um, that are black folks and are doing amazing work. It's not like I literally, you know, opened up the bank accounts and was like, I'm bringing all my family and friends in. Folks had skill sets. It's been a really bizarre experience to know the truth and to have false and misinformation be spread about me, especially around my own personal resources that I've worked my ass off to attain. We should have understood that, oh yeah, you know, we're saying we're eradicating white supremacy and we're getting millions of dollars to do it. And of course we're going to get attacked. Colors 38 resigned last May from the activist group. And that's some of the news for Monday, May 9th, 2022. The uh, news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.